0: Bibles and turn with me once again to 1st John chapter 2, 1st John chapter 2. After pausing last week to celebrate homecoming, when Brother Haywood brought us a tremendous message. It's indeed great to be back in our verse-by-verse verse series here in 1st John. And we're going to pause it again next week and focus solely on the Lord's Supper I want to bring a much-needed much message on the importance of that sacred ordinance. So let me encourage you to take time this week and prepare your hearts to come to the table next week. You may recall in um, the series of messages that I brought earlier this year on the importance of worship, the importance of the local church, we said that preparation for worship begins Monday morning and not Sunday morning. We are to perpetually prepare our hearts as we live Coram Deo, which is from the Latin, which means living before the face of God. That means living as if God Almighty is in the room with you at all times. Because guess what? He is. God is Yahweh Shama or Jehovah Shama, which means the Lord is there or the Lord is present. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere at once. God is always and at all times present and accounted for. He, is, he sees everything that you and I do at all times. The Bible tells us that the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch over the evil and the good, seeing the evil and the good that you and I do. And therefore, we need to realize that there is nothing that we can hide from God. And therefore, we need to live a holy life set-apart Christian life. The author of Hebrews tells us that without holiness, it is impossible to see God. We need to be the real deal. That's what Haywood said last week. We need to walk the walk and not just talk the talk. We need to be the Christians in private that we are in public. And when we aren't, we need to confess it. We've talked about that as well. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When a person comes to faith and repentance in Jesus Christ, they don't just confess to sin the first time and then that's it. I wish it were. I wish it were that that, 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 that was it and then from the point we're ge- regenerated and born again that we never, ever sin. But it's, unfortunately, it's not like that. We're saved, set apart, ready for heaven. The Lord Jesus has purchased our eternity, but we still battle and war with sin. And when we stumble, when we fall, we're to confess that sin. So let me encourage you to begin preparing your hearts and make that preparation an everyday practice. Our text this morning is going to help in that heart preparation, The last time that we looked at 1 John chapter 2, we looked at uh, verses 12 through 14, where John kind of hit the pause button on his spiritual tests, and he took a moment to encourage and assure his readers. He assured them that that they were walking with the Lord and encouraged them to continue to grow in the Lord. John encouraged his readers not to stay spiritually stagnant. John encouraged his readers not to be comfortable staying on the, at the same spiritual level that they were their entire Christian life. And in the passage we consider today, John does not so much get back on the spiritual test train as he does just outright warn. The verses we are about to read don't beat around the bush. John does not mince words, he comes right out front and warns with great urgency. And what does John warn about? Well, that's what we're going to think about this morning. Look with me at 1 John chapter 2, beginning at verse 15, and I want to speak to you upon the kind of love that God hates. 1 John chapter 2, beginning with verse 15, these are the words of God. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loved the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Let us pray. Our most gracious heavenly Father, we have read and we have heard not merely... Man's words, they were penned by man, but men who were impressed upon by the infallible, inerrant God. And that's why this word is infallible and inerrant. God, it's, these are spiritual words, and we cannot understand them with our time-bound fleshly eyes. So God, we pray that the same Holy Spirit which awakened our souls and regenerated us and saved us and brings us conviction when we sin. That same Holy Spirit that resurrected our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that he will help us to understand these words here and now. Father, we pray that you would do a work this morning, that you would get me out of the way, that you would speak to your people, that you would bring conviction to those who need to be convicted that you would draw the Christian to a closer walk with you. We'll be very, very careful to give you all the praise, all the glory, and all the honor. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In these verses, we see that there is a kind of love that God hates. As believers, our hearts must be in alignment with God's heart. Therefore, we must love what God loves, and we must hate what God hates. As Christians, we must love God, we must love the Lord Jesus Christ, we must love the Bible, we must love truth, we must love righteousness, and we must love people. But at the same time, we must also hate what God hates. We must hate sin, we must hate unrighteousness, and we must not love the world, and we must not love the things that are in the world. The absolute perfect love of God demands that those who love Him share His hatred for all that is opposed to Him. It's not hard to understand. It's just hard to swallow. So let's walk through these verses and we have four points in our outline to break down these three verses. At point number one in the first part of, is the first part of verse 15. We see the command. The command, look what it says. It says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If you have a more modern translation, yours probably says, do not love the world. The Holy Spirit impressed upon John not to beat around the bush, not to be vague. God, through the pen of the apostle John, directly commands his church not to love the world. The Christian, Christian people are to be people that are known for our love. We're to be known by our love. We're to put the Lord Jesus Christ on display by the way we love. Matthew chapter 5 verse 16 says, Let your light so shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We are to have a Christ-like love for people that seeks to as much as possible, as much as lies within us, to live peaceably with all men. We're to have a love that shows mercy, that shows kindness, that shows grace, and a love that speaks the truth in love. So The the most loving thing that you and I can do is to tell, tell somebody the truth in hopes that they might come to know Christ as Savior. However, we are strictly and directly commanded not to love two things, the world and things in the world. What does that mean? Well, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we're supposed to hate creation. God's not saying that. He is not saying that we're we're also supposed to hate the people in the world. We've been studying the book of Genesis on Wednesday nights, and we saw in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, God comes to the end of the creative process And he has created, he has finished creating everything in heaven and everything in earth and everything and everyone in them. And God assesses his work and he declares that it was not just good, but that it was very good. So we're not to hate God's handiwork. We're to appreciate it and give him glory and honor for it. We are also not to hate other people. The Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount expounds upon the Sixth Commandment, which tells us we are not to murder. Jesus tells us that the sin of murder goes deeper than just the act. It goes all the way to the thought behind the act. So we see that unjust anger and hatred are viewed in the eyes of God as murder. And the Lord Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, so that you may be the sons of your father who is in heaven for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. So if God shows common grace to even his enemies, you and I should as well. So what is it about the world that we're not to love? What is it John is talking about here in verse 15? In verse 15 here, we are commanded not to love this evil, fallen, satanically inspired world system. It is the invisible spiritual system of evil. The Greek word that is used there is the word cosmos, which means world order. The world order, the world system that we see is governed by Satan. It is an invisible world system that has perverted values, rampant sin, godless priorities, secular ideologies. It includes the world of the media. It includes the world of entertainment. It includes the world of music. It includes the world of education. And it includes the world of politics. It's not to say that everyone and everything in the world is evil, but it is to say there is a networking and an infrastructure that is anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-family, anti-purity, and it is run by secular humanism and selfish living and worldly thinking and it is utterly hostile towards God. And you see this played out before your eyes every day. The world is filled with godless belief systems that are trying to suppress the truth of God. You see this in politics, you see this in public education, you see this in the college and universities. It has taken over and we are told that we must not love this world. It is completely antithetical with everything that God stands for. The fallen world system is on a collision course with God. It was the evil world system that crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. And if the Lord Jesus were to walk the earth today in bodily form, the world would try to crucify him again. And we cannot love the world that crucified our Savior. We are also told not to love the things in the world. The things that are in the world are worldly possessions and worldly pleasures. Worldly possessions and worldly pleasures that become more important than loving God. The last verse of this book in fact, 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, listen to what it says. It says, little children, keep yourselves or guard yourselves from idols. An idol is anything that you love more than God. It is anything that you fear more than God or anything that you serve more than God. An idol doesn't have to be some statue carved out of wood or marble. It can be a truck, it can be a car, it can be a motorcycle, it can be a boat, it can be a job, a child, a grandchild, a house, clothes, set of golf clubs, fishing rod, a gun, money, could even be somebody who's supposedly famous, a popular actor or musician or an athlete. An idol can be anything or anyone that pulls you away from supreme love and passion for God. We are told that we're supposed to love God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind and with all of our strength. Our love for him is to be completely Unrivaled. There's not supposed to be anyone or anything else that even comes close to the love that the child of God is to have for his God. And when the Lord tells us not to love things, he's not saying that we cannot have things. He is just saying that things cannot have you. We may enjoy things, we use things. In fact, if you think about it, Christians are the only ones that can truly enjoy things because we're going to view things in their proper context, we're going to have the proper perspective. About them. So we can buy things, we can possess things, it's just that things cannot possess us. We just cannot love these things with an intense passion and devotion that must be reserved exclusively for God alone. We cannot be held in the grip of things. We are to love the one who created all things and love him first and foremost. And let me say this again, we're also to hate the things that he hates. And let there be no doubt in your mind, God hates this evil world system. He hates its values as they stand in complete opposition to him. Hear these words, Psalm 97, verse 10. It says, hate evil you who love the Lord. Psalm 119, verse 104. We need to send this to every uh, public school um, uh, uh, school board and every college and university psalm 119 verse 104 says for from your precepts i get perception what does that mean from god's word we get understanding so from your precepts i get understanding therefore i hate every false way listen to this you cannot know anything unless you first start with god He is the creator of all things. The fear of him is the beginning of wisdom. It is the beginning of knowledge. So from his word is where we get understanding. It is from his word that we know how to live properly in the world. And anything that is contrary to his word seeks only to pervert and destroy. And because that's its mission, we are to hate it. The public propaganda mill that indoctrinates young people in how to hate God, hate the Bible, hate common sense, hate his created order is a false way that leads our young people away from God. And therefore, you can rest assured God hates it. How do I know? Because of what the Lord Jesus said in Luke chapter 17 beginning in verse 1. Now he said to his disciples, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. It is the fallen world system and the things that it pushes, pushes back. That it is being pushed and fed to us by Satan that God hates. And let's not forget Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. I guarantee you, you won't ever hear this on positive, encouraging K love. These six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination to him. And you know something, I've said this many times. We as Baptists, you know, kind of get a bad rap that we run around waving our Bible everywhere calling everything an abomination. Some pastors and preachers may have done that, right? God doesn't do that. God does not throw that word abomination around lightly. And when he says it, when we come to a place in Scripture where he uses it, our ears need to pick up and we need to pay close attention. He says, these six things does the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination unto him. One is a proud look. It's a haughty look. It's a look that looks down upon people that says, I'm better than you. A lying tongue. Lies are, 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 are so despised by God that he, he says, he uses it again in verse 19, a false witness is that speaks lies. God does not like, he, God hates anything that is not truth. Anything that is not truth. And so for people who go around thinking that it, you know, it's okay to tell, tell a little white lie here and there, there are no such things as white lies and black lies. They're all despised in the, in the eyes of God. And then it says, hands that shed innocent blood. Boy, we see that, and it's been so talked in in our day with with, with abortion. And you can't get much more innocent than that, the the shedding of that innocent blood. But it goes further than that as well. We are in a time where there is no fear of God before anybody's eyes, and people would just as soon kill you to take the shoes off of your feet, or the money out of your pocket, or the cell phone out of your hand, is they would wave at you. I don't think there's ever been a more vicious Time in the history of this country than it is right this moment. And we can see it everywhere because there's videos constantly being uploaded because people are so afraid and people just do not care and they fear God and they don't fear God. The fear of God is so absent that people will not even step in and try to stop what's going on. They want to stand and do this. It is Wretched. And God says that he hates hands that shed innocent blood and a heart that devises wicked imaginations. So people in high authoritative positions that sit around and plot how they're going to control and rule things, they will rue the day they ever had the first wicked imagination when they stand before God Almighty if they do not repent. Feet that are swift to run into mischief. This doesn't mean playing practical jokes. This doesn't mean trying to stir up joy. These are people that just like to go around and just set dumpster fires. They like to go around and they like to just cause drama and stir it up and get people stirred up and angry at one another and then step back and watch it happen. We're told that God hates that And and one that sows discord among brethren. So God does not mince words In this passage, God hates those things because they are in complete opposition to him and his nature. They are inconsistent with his glory. And so the born again child of God is not to walk in lockstep with the world. We are not to love the world nor the things in the world. Point number two, second part of verse 15, we see the conflict. Look what it says. It says, if any man love the world, then the love of the Father is not in him. The kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God are at odds. I'll say it again. They're completely opposite of one another. They cannot peacefully coexist. And you think about this. The world is aggressively after people. The world is aggressively after us. And think about this. The world evangelizes people. You, th- you, th- you think about this, right? Right? One of the tools that we just used to evangelize the community was Vacation Bible School, right? Who are we trying to evangelize? Children, right? Because you start young. You plant that seed young and hopefully over time, whether they come back here or they go somewhere else, that seed, God will bring forth the fruit of that seed that will bring to uh, lead to their salvation and hopefully the salvation of their whole family, right? Does not the world do the same exact thing with how they evangelize? You see it now. We see, and we see these articles about the perversity that's going on with, with, with drag, queen, drag queen story time and stuff like this. And, and we think here in Southside Virginia that we're kind of immune to this stuff, right? That stuff just like that just doesn't filter down to here. Well, it's in Jefferson Forest High School. It's in Jefferson Forest High School. I believe that's in Bedford County, right? Right, yeah. And what are they doing with that? They're trying to make young people as small as a child comfortable with that lifestyle so that it draws them into it. The world evangelizes people as well. This world is seeking to capture us, control us, and then corrupt us. And true Christians, therefore, will not be characterized by a habitual love for the world. And think about it, and on the flip side, worldly people will not demonstrate a genuine affection for the gospel and its Lord, not until salvation has taken place. And a person cannot have a love for both kingdoms. A pers- As a person's love for God increases, a person's love for the world will dis- will decrease, and vice versa. Matthew chapter six verse twenty four, the Lord Jesus says, "No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate one and love the other; he will he will serve the one and despise the other." You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God and wealth. So your master will either be Jesus Christ, or it will be the world. John is. Drawing from the test that he's used back in chapter 1, John, where John said that if a person claims to be in the light of God, yet they consistently walk in darkness, or if they say that they have no sin, or they say that they've never even sinned at all, they lie and the truth of God is not in them. John's saying the same thing here. He's saying if you love the world, if you find your fulfillment in the world, if you set your ultimate affection on the things in the world then the love of the Father is not in you. Then you are not what you may profess to be. A person whose love is in the world and in the things of the world, although may have professed Christianity, are not a Christian at all. Second Timothy is the final letter that the Apostle Paul wrote prior to his death. Paul was tired, he was old, he was beat down, he was wore out, and he was eager to see his Savior. But yet at the same time, he was concerned for the ones that he was going to leave behind, especially Timothy, his close companion and his son in the faith. So in that final epistle, Paul wanted to exhort and encourage Timothy to be strong and to be courageous. Paul reminds Timothy that there were people that had deserted him 2 Timothy Timothy 1, verse 15 says, You are aware of this, that all who were in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. Paul is telling Timothy that that he needed to be strong and cloaked in his calling because difficult times would arise and people that he thought were with him, people that he thought were in the trenches with him, people that he thought were trusted brothers, people that he thought were co-laborers may leave him. Because they did Paul as well. And when you think about it, before Christ went to the cross, when he was arrested, every one of them fled him. So in thinking about Paul and what he was talking about, about people defecting from him or turning away from him, the most notable would be in Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, we read about a man named Demas. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10 says, For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. De- Demas is believed to have been a likely co-worker with Paul for many years and administered with Paul and other men like Timothy, like Titus, like Luke, like Mark. Yet despite having been in the presence of such formidable men of God, great preachers of the Word, authors of Scripture, church planners faithful servants men of prayer men who suffered for the gospel demons demas abandons paul and the rest of the team why because he loved the world because he loved the world system with its sin and human wisdom and satanic deceptions more than he loved god's kingdom Demas' life displayed characteristics of both the shallow and rocky soul in which the seed of the Word flourished briefly, but withered and died in the face of tribulation and persecution. And also the thorny soul in which the seed was smothered under the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth. Here you have the Apostle Paul who was, an, who was willingly anticipating losing his life for the faith. But Demas wasn't willing to pay that price. Therefore, he forsook his co-laborers and went to Thessalonica. In doing so, Demas proved that he never had a love for God. In two weeks, we're going to work our way down to verse 19, and we're going to discuss something called apostasy. Apostasy is when a person or a group of people recant on a previous profession of of faith in Jesus Christ. It's when people say, when people take back their supposed one-time profession that they at one time believed. There's a popular phrase that's being tossed around today. You may have heard it, and it's called Christian deconstruction. It's supposedly when a person tears, tears down or deconstructs once deeply held religious beliefs. Folks say that they were once a Christian and now they're no longer. Or also folks that say they are still a Christian, but they no longer hold the biblical beliefs on certain subjects. There are many in this day that we could list about that. They recant on um, past views on homosexuality and homosexual mirage all over the money that they fear they might lose. All deconstruction is is another term for apostasy. It's fallen away from the faith because the person was never, ever truly in the faith to begin with. Look what it says. Verse 19 of chapter 2 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. And if they had been of us, they would not have no doubt have continued with us, but they went out that they might be manifest that they were not all of us. Demas proved that he went out because he was never truly there. He was never truly with Christ to begin with. Demas was guilty of spiritual harlotry. Demas could not surrender his love for the world, and he proved that he had never truly surrendered to the Lord. And people like Demas proved that any previous claim to know and love God was nothing but a lie, that the love of the Father was not ever in them. Point number three, verse 16. Now we see the classification. What does the, what is, what is the love of the world and love of things in the world look like? What, is, what does it look like? John gives us three descriptions of it. John gives us three descriptions of it. Look what it says. It's for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father but is of the world. Let's break that down. Lust of the flesh. That word lust means strong,ful strong desires. Flesh is our sinful nature. Our sinful nature dominated by sin and rebellion is closely tied uh, to the physical aspect of mankind and that's and we refer to it, the flesh. That's what's still inside of us. When we were born again, our flesh is now under the mastery of the Lord Jesus Christ and we still have this flesh with its sinful appetites. Let me read to you what Paul said in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. He said, "'This I say then, walk in the Spirit,' And ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Which means you have to walk in the mindset that is on Christ, on the things of Christ. Walk with that mindset that seeks to please God, that seeks to show off God to everyone around you, to keep you from fulfilling the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. It's like this. The spirit is pushing down on the gas pedal to drive us toward the will of, to drive us forward in the will of God. While the flesh is grabbing hold of the steering wheel and trying to lock down the brakes to slow us down from moving forward in the will of God. So that's the lust of the flesh. And then there's the lust of the eyes. The eyes are so, or or, or key to what is triggering the flesh. What you set before your eyes now has an entry point into your flesh. Your eyes are like the picture window of your house or the windshield of your car. And what you look at with your eyes has the capacity to ignite your flesh and so many temptations enter through our eyes. Our eyes are dangling the bait before our flesh. And the eyes have been a downfall of many a person in the Bible. Think with me about Eve, right? Genesis chapter 3 verse 6. The Bible says in Genesis chapter three, verse six, it says the woman saw the tree was good for food. She saw the tree and it was good for food and it was a delight to her eyes. And the tree was desirable to make one wise. So she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband who was with her and he ate. Eve set her eyes on what was forbidden and it captured her heart and it controlled her and it corrupted her from the inside you also think about David you can't think about s- sin and, and lustful thoughts and, 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 and setting your eyes on something that you shouldn't and not think about King David Second Samuel chapter 11 verse 2 says now when the evening came David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house we talked about that so much because we looked at uh, David's life on Wednesday night for a long long time David was so in the wrong here his men were off fighting and it was, it, was, it was customary in that day for the king to be off with them. So David was already messed up because he wasn't with his men fighting. That pride had already began to work within him because, hey, I'm just going to sit back and enjoy some of the fruits of my labor. and I'm going to walk out on the palace roof and I'm just going to look at, uh, you know he had to be thinking, look at everything I've built. As opposed to everything that the Lord has built through me or everything that the Lord has just built, right? He's got to be thinking, of bragging to himself of everything that I've built. So he walked around on the roof of the king's house and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. He set in front of his eyes that which was forbidden. He could have looked and turned around and went on back in the house. He got a wife of his own. Could have, could have turned around and went on back inside. But he didn't. He kept looking. He set in front of his eyes that which was forbidden and he stirred up his flesh and it caused him to do what was unlawful and sin against God. His son, Solomon, would do the same thing. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 verse 10 says, All that my eyes asked for, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any gladness, for my heart was glad because all my labor. This was my reward for all my labor. Solomon admits that he gave himself over to the excesses that he set his eyes on. And everything that he looked at cultivated desires that ruined his life. So putting your eyes on the wrong things can cause that thing to have control over you. And what, how, do we, how do we master that? How do we not let things master us? The Lord Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 18, verse 9, and if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter uh, life with one eye than having two eyes and be cast into fiery hell. Does that mean when we look at something that causes us to lust, we're just supposed to blind ourselves? No. No. But it means take radical steps to ensure that you Don't lust after whatever it is that you're looking at. That that, that what you look at does not cause you to sin. If it means you got to get rid of the phone, you get rid of the phone. If it means you got to get rid of the television, you get rid of the television. If you got to stop hanging out with certain people, you stop hanging out with them. You do whatever it is that you need to do to keep you from being tempted to sin against the Lord to take those bold, radical steps to ensure that you do not set your eyes on things that will take a hold of you and take hold of your heart and your desires. Then the third thing we see is the boastful pride of life or the pride of life. It's it's known in other places as the boastful pride of life because what we see that appeals appeals to, to our flesh ignites our pride. We'll think that if I just had this whatever... I would appear to be something that, you know, I would appear to be something and I would be better off than anyone else and they would look up to me because I have something that they don't. It ignites pride, you know, and you see this a lot because we're constantly hurled with advertisements, right? We see, you know, young people who, who, who are infatu- infatuated with shoes, expensive shoes like Jordans and stuff like this. They're like, man, I've got to have that because that if I have them, then people are going to think well of me. People are going to think I'm cool or whatever, right? It's playing on the pride of life. And here's the, here's the essence of the pride of life anything that exalts us above our station and offers the, the illustration of godlike qualities wherein we boast in arrogance and worldly wisdom. Satan tried it with Jesus, right? You, you remember Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, when he tempted Jesus after his 40 days of fasting in the wilderness? He tempted Jesus with the lust of the flesh, when he, with, the, with the bread for his hunger. Verses 2 through 3. The lust of the eyes, when he showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world with their splendor. And the pride of life, daring Jesus to cast himself from the roof of the temple in order to prove that he was the Messiah by some display of power that was not in the will of God. It was not in the redemptive plan of God for mankind. But what did Jesus do? Through every temptation, he quoted scripture. It is written. It is written. It is written. And we see the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father. It's not of the Father. God does not tempt His people to sin. God does not want His people to sin. God does not bless sin. God has not changed His mind about sin. We don't have a proper understanding of sin. We don't have a proper understanding for how God views sin. We like to downplay it, and we like to downplay it in thinking that we're sparing someone their feelings and not wanting to make them uncomfortable. God doesn't downplay it. He hates it. It's such an offense to Him that the penalty for it is an eternity in hell. And His hatred for sin and love for His creation was so great that in order to reconcile it, He sent Jesus to the cross to die in our place. So when it comes to sin, someone will, when it comes to your sin, someone will be punished for it. It will either be you in hell for all eternity, or that sin was upon Jesus on the cross. Point number four, and I'm done. The conclusion. What's going to happen? What's going to happen to this evil world system? Look what it says in, in verse 17. There's a conclusion. There's a conclusion to those who follow the world, those who love the world, and there's a conclusion for those who uh, follow the Lord. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. This evil world system will not last. It is fading away under the groaning of the sin curse, and the world system cannot and it will not last. Nothing of the world lasts. There is no substance to it. It is self-destructing with all of its paganism, all of its hedonism, its atheism, materialism, and idolatry. And so John exhorts the people that are reading, so why would you want to put all of your eggs in a basket that's just going to perish? But on the other hand, the one who does the will of God, who savingly trusts and obeys Christ, has nothing to fear has nothing to fear concerning the world's destruction. This world is passing away and so is its lust. Hallelujah. I agree with what Pastor John MacArthur said when he was asked, he was asked one time, he said, apart from Jesus, what are you looking forward to most about heaven? He said, I'm looking forward to no more sin. I'm very tired of sin. So am I. So am I. I'll be so glad when one day when we live in a land where there's no more sin, we're going to see things in all of its beauty, in all of its fullness, in all of its glory, and there will be no more sin, no more brokenness, no more of sin's effects, no more sin curse, no more temptation to sin, no more thought of sin. For it says it is not of God. This stuff is not of God. The world is and its lust thereof are not of God, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. It's God's will that people believe the gospel and repent of their sin and embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The Lord Jesus said in John chapter 6 verse 40, for this is the will of my Father that everyone who sees the Son believes in Him will have eternal life. Each person who who has obeyed that teaching is a Christian and will abide, will live forever. I'm going to quote Haywood as he last week, he was quoting the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 9, I have not seen nor your herd, neither has entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for all that love him. What awaits those that love this world is eternal destruction. But what awaits those that love God is a reward words cannot properly describe. And the ultimate reward for the one that truly loves God won't be the mansion's. It won't be being able to walk by that river of life. It won't be beholding the beauty of those gates surrounding the new Jerusalem. The ultimate reward for the people of God will be Jesus. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. He is our Redeemer and Lord. He is the way in which we follow to eternal life. He is our destination and He is the reward for all that love Him. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank You, Lord, for Your Word. God, we do pray that You would indeed continue to purge from us a love of this world and a love of the things in the world. God, we thank You for the blessings that You have bestowed upon us, Lord, with good jobs and good incomes that allow us to have things God, help us to view things in its proper context. Yes, we can enjoy them, but we should appreciate and love the one from which those those blessings came from, and that's from you. God, purge us of our love of this world. Purge us of our love for stuff. God, if there is anything in our lives that we hold more dearly and love more than you. Help us to get it right. Help us, Lord, to love you above all else, above all others, and above all things. For you are worthy of all of our worship, all of our praise, and all of our love because you bestowed it upon us in the cross. Help us, Lord, for it's in Jesus' name we ask and pray these things. Amen.